0: What we found over 20 years is that our job is to create the space for brilliant people to do brilliant work. There's this deep empathy that teams help each other achieve more. You know, this just truly understanding that work is collaborative and we can't work on our own and we care deeply about each other's fulfillment. Talk about a large mistake. You know, we built Conveyor. We started working on Conveyor five years before we shut it down. And so it's not the money that's the mistake. The mistake was not following my own like true principles and pretending like this one was different. I'm Natalie Nagel, co-founder and CEO of Wildbit.
1: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry, and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Natalie Nagel created a product business that has supported human beings for 20 years. All this and more on Code Story. Natalie Nagel came to the States in 1989 as a Jewish refugee from Russia. She watched her parents go from nothing And utilizing furniture from the trash to building big businesses and supporting their family she met Chris her husband when she was 18 and they have been working together ever since as he is the co-founder of their business they have two kids together and love to travel specifically to the Caribbean since it's a quick flight from Philly and of course it's warm despite that though she would love to live in Italy one day their company started off as a remote consulting company, but launched their first product in 2003, and they were immediately hooked. In 2009, they stopped doing client work and focused solely on products, and haven't looked back for 20 years. This is the creation story of Wild Bit.
0: So Wildbit started off as a consulting company. So, you know, those first couple of years, Chris was on his own. We've always been remote. So the first person Chris ever hired was in Romania in 2000. So you have to imagine like remote was not, didn't have a name yet back then, but, you know, started as a consulting company early, early days was brochure stuff. By the time Chris and I were together and working together, we were building social networks for other companies and then kind of launched our first product in 2003. It was an email marketing product. And then just got bit by the bug, by the product bug, and eventually, around 2009, I think, we stopped doing all client work and just doubled down on product. So we have had a bunch of products. Uh, some, right now, we have four. We have had a few that we sold, shut down, things like that. But Postmark is our largest product. And that was born out of a personal need. I think of a lot of patterns that we found in how we build software is a lot of times we're Dog fooding or building things that make our lives easier. So at the time when we built Postmark, which is almost 11 years old, in April it'll be 11, we have a product called Beanstalk that was sending a lot of transactional email. So that's your kind of sign up emails, your comment notifications, you know any emails like the app actually sends. Back then, you know, 11 years ago, those emails, we would like manage the mail servers and we would have no visible uh, dashboards or UI to see, about, you know, if those emails were getting through, if our customers were getting them. Support would come in and I, I, back then I also did support. We were a much smaller team and you know support would come in and it would be like, hey, I invited my client to use Beanstalk and they never got the email. What's up? You know like what's going on and we had no visibility. So Chris had this idea like let's build a, you a product that sends those emails. We had had the experience in sending emails and managing email infrastructure from our very first product Newsberry but build a UI over it. So I think our first tagline you know 11 or 12 years ago when we did the MVP was because you're blind because there were no ESPs like that, no no API-based email service providers that would give you visibility into what your applications were sending. You had email marketing stuff, right? Mailchimp and campaign monitors. So our first MVP took three months and we have that as a consistent theme it's really funny we were just talking about this internally we we're thinking about another product and we were talking about this internally how everything we've ever built the first mvp took three months it was never a goal it's just kind of how it turned out i think we really like to go scrappy in that first time around everything but conveyor but we don't have to talk about that we had a product that we built for two years and then throughout or for five years and then kind of never launched it but for the most part all of our successful products took three months to build And the MVP was, can we build a UI on top of an API that sends transactional emails for apps? Would people find it useful? You know, would they use it? And so built like a really simple product that did all the core functionalities and it took off really quickly.
1: So you're doing, you know, early days, you're doing some consulting and then you build some products and you put away the consulting hat. What made you continue to be more of a product shop instead of centering your company around that one product?
0: There's a lot of deep introspection I think we've done to, I think, understand that better. It's always been a question because for a long time, the best practice, you know, or the the, the sage advice was double down on one, right? Put all of your eggs in one basket. Chris and I, I think for a couple reasons, never liked that approach. The main one is because we get bored. Uh, we have ideas, right? And because while it doesn't exist simply to make money, it exists for a lot of other reasons, you know, fulfillment being one of them, an important part of it, We just always had ideas and we're always curious to explore what else can we build. And that same thing goes to our team, right? We are very grateful and humbled by how long folks stay with Wildbit. We have somebody who just celebrated their 16th anniversary with Wildbit, 14 years with Wildbit. So people stay a lot of that team. I think we have over half the team is here for more than four years. A lot of why that occurs at Wildbit is not magic. It's because we have multiple products which allow individuals to almost reinvent themselves or change jobs within an organization. And so I think like at the core of it, one of our operating principles as a company is this belief that a business is not a product. You know, a, a company is a collection of human beings and the products enable the work of those people. And so it's just allowed us to really look at products as a way of providing value in the world, value to ourselves and value to our customers. Currently this year, we're working on a a kind of a more operating framework around the different phases of products, products, lives, how we, you know, how we start an idea, how we test it, how we, you know, validate it and that kind of thing. But it's just the core of who we are. We, we really enjoy it. And this was not intentional, but now it seems really obvious. Having multiple products has allowed us to be who we are and allowed us to be around for 20 years. You know, markets change pretty dramatically. And Beanstalk was this product It is a a version control product at its core. It started as Subversion and moved into Git hosting, and you know that market dramatically changed in front of our eyes. And really, our options were to grow really big and go compete against the you know 800-pound gorillas or try to compete on some other ways. And because we also had Postmark in the works, we were able to kind of say, you know what, we don't want to go that route. We can invest our effort and energy into Postmark. And so it's really given us a lot of cushion around market conditions and more, uh, more flexibility in our even in our operating structure to be able to say, hey, if this product doesn't work out, if something changes in the market, we still have opportunities in other places.
1: You know it's interesting i'm thinking back i used beanstalk before and i have i didn't remember um i was thinking about the first time actually started to use as kind of a, uh, you know, code manager, uh, you know, things like that. Um, I was introduced to Beanstalk in one of the early projects I was doing um, and really enjoyed it. So it's, it's a great product.
0: It's really cool. I mean, and that's one of those, you know, we were really young when that launched and uh, it was a different world back then. I think as business people, we were not really, we didn't consider ourselves business people. We really just were building stuff that was fun, but you're like, Beanstalk in the early days, When Chris had the idea for it, we went out to all of our friends and we were like, "Hey, would you, you know, go to a hosted solution?" Because back this is 2007, like there were no hosted solutions, right? And people looked at us like, "Are you crazy? I'm not giving you my source code. That's insane!" You know, now like who on earth would not, you know, just host it somewhere? But it was—it's an interesting—you know—there's a lot of learnings that we've had from there because it was one of the first. We had some of the biggest brands in the world using it, and you know, it became not github you know not bitbucket and so there's a lot of learnings that chris and i have taken from that experience and just realizing who we are as people and what we took for granted back then and and try to not have that happen to us again
1: well tell me about some of the mvps and i'll let you choose which one you know you talk about but tell me about some of those mvps what decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the um, in the short term, while building those, and what sort of tools did you use to bring them to life?
0: We're really big on being scrappy. It's like it's almost it, it's almost like a sick kind of uh, obsession with like how little can we make it. You know, we built custom software. Unfortunately, most of the time, and when we built Postmark, we were, like we didn't even have a Stripe, right? All our billing was always custom. So things are much easier now when we when we throw something together. But you know, all custom software. But what we do is we get rid of the things that aren't necessary. So people laugh, but like we didn't have an ability to cancel in the app. Uh, no user permissions, you know, no two-factor. I mean, back then, now I wouldn't launch an app without two-factor, but like no two-factor, right? Like the simplest of login. Billing was really simple. Like I think our invoices were, were really basic. We look at it from what are we promising our user and what's gonna obviously delight them right? What's going to be enough for them to take it and and switch to it. We didn't have cancel, I think, honestly, Noah, for maybe a year. And it was like not an issue, right? Most people weren't canceling. It wasn't a month. One of the reasons we were able to get away with it was because it wasn't a recurring revenue product in the beginning. It was a kind of transaction-based product. So you weren't going to get billed unless you used it. So, you know, you could kind of keep an account and just email the team. We still take that to heart. We launched a product called Demark Digest recently and obviously took advantage of a lot of what exists now. You know, we could use Stripe, and do all our billing through there and now we're able to reuse some of our own stuff you know like we try to create consistency across multiple products but in the same vein there was a lot of features that we just didn't like user permissions as an example we don't spend a lot of time in there user permissions is one of those things we go through later down the line nobody's not going to sign up unless you have like a big team-based product but we our view is like nobody's going to not sign up because they need to invite 40 different users and different levels of permissions what they want to know is does this thing work so we you know that was another example where we did have cancellation because it was a monthly plan but we didn't have like proration for example or like little things like that just kind of made it as simple as possible
1: that makes sense get the product out there delight them with the product and then as it takes off or as people are interested maybe add some of those things in later
0: yeah i mean the alternative is conveyor which we worked on for five years as as an mvp spent three million dollars and then just turned it off yeah, I, I prefer not to work that way. Right, that was a bad call for a, a variety of reasons. With every other product, we really like that three month mark. Like, what can you build in a quarter? Right, how fast can you get to value in a quarter?
1: So, on the on the payment stuff, you you mentioned. Kind of rolling your own in the beginning and then as as later products you build you use stripe or you use you know frameworks that were available did you have any competitive advantages with rolling your own like a better fee structure or more control obviously speed of deployment comes into play whenever you're using stripe or something but did you have anything that was better by rolling your own
0: sure I mean I think there's a couple things I have a little bit of a control issue especially when it comes to customer data and so we really want to be as you know we're really privacy focused and to really try to make sure that we're not sending our customer data all over the place so i like to own our own as much as we can but i think in the early days of postmark we had the only product that charged by usage but not a monthly recurring price which is really hard to even roll out in Stripe. I mean, you can't. We use Stripe for all of our products now, and they worked with us, and we were able to build some custom stuff. But like in the early days, we were we were a dollar fifty per thousand emails sent, which the only competition we had back then. You know, they had minimum monthly plans. We have that now because of just kind of restructuring things. But in the early days, it really helped us grow our customer base as having just an alternative structure and a more simplified structure. To answer your question, that was like a competitive advantage for us. But, you know, we didn't do that with DMARC, for example. Like we definitely launched DMARC Digest using Stripe right away. Things are just more complicated. Now we have sales tax as an an example. You know, I didn't have sales tax requirements 11 years ago. If you would have told me I have to build sales tax from scratch, I would be like, forget, I'm not building a product anymore. Like that stuff is just so complicated.
1: So, uh, you know, in the product portfolio, how, how do you go about progressing a product? So you build that, you know, first MVP, you get it, get it out there, you get some traction. Um, and you mentioned, you know, then adding, maybe like, you know, inviting users or certain billing features or things after the fact, but how do you go about that product progression process? And I'm, I'm kind of most interested in how do you build your roadmap? How do you determine what's the next most important thing to build?
0: I will tell you that it's a constantly evolving answer. I'll give you our current answer to it, but I can't say that that's how it's always worked right now, we're very focused as a company in, in answering that question a little bit in a, in a more organized fashion, a more operational fashion. I mean, a lot of gut will always go into our decision making because I believe the simplest things are always the better things. So sometimes you just know and you don't need to measure it or test it or you know do all that stuff. But we we look at products at different phases of their life. So we've kind of got like a phase one through five and you know phase one is that idea phase and phase five is maybe the product's done and it's just kind of living its life. And, and then you have all these phases. In between. So, there's a lot of validation that happens in the middle phases of understanding what is our value proposition and then how do we keep nailing it until our customers are saying it back to us, right? They get it and we solved it. And then it's kind of, we move into this like delight phase. So, the next thing to build heavily depends on which phase a product is in. We have very small teams that work on products like we try to keep them very very uh small so they can be autonomous and so they can work closely together so our customer success team is constantly in connection with our product team to make sure that there's a, a, a single conversation going between the customer and the You know the end user and the person building the thing and we look at a spectrum of is this going to improve the product is this going to maintain the product this is going to delight the user right and there's a spectrum so it depends on the life cycle i can say for example uh with postmark we spent two plus years on two very big projects not something i normally do but it was to completely change this, the structure of the product, right? The product was in phase three. We needed to deliver on the value proposition of we can send all of your emails. We were only transactional for a long time and we wanted to build it so we can send all your emails. That was a very clearly defined roadmap because it was such a big undertaking. Now we're in a phase where like, we need to delight our users. What What are the pain points for them? What hurts? We like to do this thing where we send out a survey to customers and say, what annoys you? not what features do you want not like what's the thing that bot like what 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 else can i do for you but like what annoys you when you use the product and then we just will take like an iteration an entire quarter and just like crush all of those little annoyances you know, so I think it's it's not like the simplest of answers because I don't think there is like one singular answer. It just depends on this really tight collaboration between our customers and what they need and our product team and their understanding of what what where is this product right now? Are we growing it? Are we trying to figure out what our value prop is and, and trying to reach it, you know, or are we still validating that this is even a thing? So there's just a lot of inter- interaction and collaboration in that in, in, amongst those teams and with the customers. One of the things we're extremely proud of as a company is we have a non-linear correlation between our customers growing and our support team growing because we built really solid products. We prioritize you know, the product working on its own without needing support. And then we have this amazing customer support team that's just phenomenal, but it's non-linear, which I'm really proud of, right? Because you want to kind of have that economies of scale part of making sure that they grow non-linearly is making sure we, we carve out time to make their lives better. So like little internal tools, little small product improvements, right? You always have the the thing that annoys the CS team because it's the same answer over and over again. And what it, you know, if we just had a better explanation in the app, right? Or if we just made this button, you know, work fast. And what we do is that the CS team, you know, to answer your question, what we work on, the CS team every month does a summary for the entire team, for the entire company of number of tickets and by theme or by, by issue. They're, they know that their job is to advocate for the customer. Like that's their number one priority. So they will come in and be very direct with what they think needs to change. And so we will frequently squeeze in little things like that. Like if they come in, they're like, look, we had, you know, 300 support tickets and it just keeps going up for this one thing. Like we had an issue with like a DNS update where customers would create an account and they would be waiting, sitting around and waiting for this DNS to update so that they could use Postmark. And it just sometimes it wouldn't work. And it would generate like a ton of support because how long are you going to sit there and wait, right? You're going to think it's broke you're going to email support it's obviously ruining the customer experience but it's also really creating a lot of load on the cs team and that's the kind of stuff that they they surface it to the team on a regular basis and the team reads it and sometimes they'll be like hey i can grab this you know i have an extra couple days or i'll I'll do this in a couple hours and they'll grab a small thing and they'll change it or sometimes we'll do like we did last quarter where we said all right what are the top of that list and how can we crush it like how can we just get rid of it
1: let's let's switch to team so how do you how do you go about building your team and you know across products really but across team culture company culture i know you have a very specific and and unique view on company culture and how you go about it with people based how do you how do you go about building that team And, and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you
0: you know, it's funny, when you say winning horse, I almost, am like, oh, they're not horses, they're people. It, it's really comes down to people. I think the, the thing that makes Wildbit a little unique, it, well, two things that make Wildbit unique. One is the fact that neither Chris nor I are software developers. So uh, Chris coded very early in his career when he was 19, realized very quickly it wasn't for him. So we've never been in the position where like, I can do this, you know? So from day one or day two, call it, we always prioritized the experience that every employee has a wild bit. It was always the most important thing. So for us, culture is about understanding who we are as a company and where we wanna go and then finding folks who feel really passionately about going there with us. And, you know, we're a small but mighty software company with multiple products, right? So we're a team that can't be filled with people who are possessive over their work, for example, or who who aren't interested in changing direction or changing uh, what they work on. Uh, one of the ways in which we find the right people is we're looking for individuals who understand that a peaceful, fulfilling work requires work, right? So it's like, it's a, it's a mutual agreement. One of our core operating principles is that fulfilling work will push you, but not break you, you know? And so it's this idea that, uh, people come here curious and passionate about their craft and appreciating the fact that work is not the most important thing in the world. So, uh, we have values and principles. We actually just updated, uh, a set of principles that rules by which we live and then values by which we work, our behaviors, and we use them very much as a framework for how we identify individuals who we think will really thrive here and be really successful here.
1: It's interesting too, you know, it is about people, but I, I hear you saying too, it's about people that are coming in that are not going to be possessive of their work. They need to be able to work autonomous. In that mixed, it, it seems like they're, they're probably hungry, they're excited, you know, given the right fulfilling opportunity that that you were mentioning, they'll, they'll come and, you know, turn somersaults for you.
0: What we found over, you know, 20 years is that our job is to create the space for brilliant people to do brilliant work. I don't think they do somersaults for us as much as they do it for each other. There's this deep empathy that teams help each other achieve more. You know, this just truly understanding that work is collaborative, and we can't work in our, on our own. And we care deeply about each other's fulfillment in, in their in their job. You know, if you kind of look at like our principles, right? Like our these five rules, these things that we believe will never change, no matter how much, how, how long a company's been in business, no matter how big we get. We have these core essential beliefs that we all have to share and they are this empathy for each other they're this idea that work is a is a commitment you know there's a compact almost between the company and the employee i as your company promise to create a space where you can have deep work meaningful work where work does not become the center of your world it becomes an integration into your world and then you as as employee make a compact to us that says I, it, and i'm going to you know for us it's stay calm and keep perspective i'm going to be guided by purpose I'm going to celebrate opportunities to learn. I'm not going to fight against taking risks, calculated risks, but then I'm going to be team oriented while also self motivated. Right? So it's like, I look at it as a, as a compact between each other, right? You can't expect your team to do all these things if you're not creating the space for them to do it. And I think that's where most of the time culture breaks, uh, employers and companies, you know, whatever, however you want to look at it, really look at it. My gift to you is money and your gift to me is your time and attention and i don't think that's right like i don't money is just a, a piece of a bigger equation and so if you can believe that people are really do want to be fulfilled in their work you just aren't you have to give them the space to do that then they will you know respond with creating great products right caring for each other caring for their customers caring for you as an owner right i mean all of that comes as a result of creating that space
1: well, this will be interesting because you know I, I ask about you know scalability normally. and um, I hear you saying that your your product company is is scrappy. You want to have a, only a handful of people on each product. The products, you know we can talk about how you scaled some of the products if you'd like. but i'm I'm interested in that and also how you effectively you know scale your company. Um, you know, as you're bringing on new ideas, new products, uh, and things like that. So talk me about scalability.
0: Scalability is like my favorite topic right now, because I am super excited to understand how you scale a company like ours. I've been spending a lot of time researching and looking into other organizations to see how it works. My my perspectives changed a little bit. I you know for a long time I looked at private bootstrapped companies as wanting to prove the opposite of venture capital in that It's not about maximizing your expenses and like hiring as many people as possible and growing faster than the the product grows to like reach some growth milestone. And the opposite in my mind was as efficient as possible, right, hire the least amount of people to do the most amount of work, you know, to do, I guess, to do the most amount of work, to see the most results, right, the biggest results. My mind has shifted a little bit in that I'm not really sure the opposite of growth at all costs is maybe slow growth or or minimizing team size. I'm looking a lot at maximizing impact. So how can you scale a business like ours with maximizing impact? Right, so scaling impact and the biggest impact I think I can have as a company is hiring people because the more people they get to work at Wildbit, I think of it as ripples, you know, like if you drop a pebble in water, it creates ripples and the employees that first ripple, but then they have their families, their communities, you know, all the ways in which they contribute and create impact, positive impact. So like, you know, that's how you scale that. So, you know, Postmark is an interesting example. It's our biggest product that has the most people, but we have other products and people move around. So for us, scale a lot of times is where can we be efficient, but not at a cost, right? Not for the sake of efficiency, but for the sake of other things. We think about the CS team as a good example of where Postmark is gonna take up a lot of our resources, but we have other products to support. Does that mean I have to get a dedicated customer success team for each product or can my one customer success team find ways to support all the products so i don't have to you know scale that uh, disproportionately and you know we've been looking at that and saying well where can we have consistency across our products account level permission or account level things come as an example right if all our user permissions look more or less the same if all of our billing is the same if all of you know login is the same a cs person on our team can be a generalist right they can know how a lot of products work versus making them specialize in each product. So we're thinking a lot about how you scale a company for positive impact, but not just for the sake of maximizing profits. I love profits, but it can't just be the, the means to the end, right? There's got to be more to it than that.
1: So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built product wise, company wise with Wildbit. What are you most proud of?
0: Uh, Most proud of the people. I am daily impressed with just how brilliant and caring and just wonderful they are as human beings. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we've built a place where they can be those people. Lately, especially, I've been hiring folks who are coming from, you know, your typical Silicon Valley startup world and they share how much they're able to be more of themselves at Wildbit because they don't have to protect their work at all costs so it doesn't get stolen by somebody else, you know, or uh, because they're respected even though they're a woman on the engineering team, you know, or because they are respected to move slower but with intention. You know, there's just... I'm proud that we've created that space. I can't say that it was always intentional. I think it's just part of that is just who we are and, and how we view the world but that watching really beautiful human beings do amazing things for themselves, for each other, uh, for their communities is, is definitely what I'm most proud of.
1: You know, it's, a, it's kind of a sad state of the world that elsewhere that is not the norm, you know, that people have to protect their work or they have to be worried about their gender or their skin color or anything. I'm glad Wildbit is creating a, a great home for people there.
0: Yeah, it's like so disappointing. We launched People First Jobs because a little bit like, while it's not unique, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are really, that, that put people first. And that was kind of the, the guiding principles. Like a lot of the team was like, there's other companies like us, we got to bring us all together. And we have to help people who care. We have to help them find more organizations that prioritize people, human beings, over some of this other crap that we've been convinced is, <laughs> is the purpose of business, which it's just old way of thinking.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: I've never made mistakes. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I tell my team, I'm all, I know, I'm always right. You guys, what are you talking about? I have made so many mistakes. I mean, if you want to talk about a large mistake, you know, we built Conveyor. We started working on Conveyor five years before we shut it down. And so it's not the money that's the mistake the mistake was not following my own like true principles and pretending like this one was different i always love that idea that the world is i think it's, it's ray Dalio, right everything is another one of those the mistake that chris and i made was looking at conveyor as this product and believing that like you don't need to reach some minimal and you know mvp is a loaded thing now or whatever but you got to reach some kind of value sooner than 5 years <laughs> and you got to you know you got to Look at your team and, and and be honest that you can fail at things and that's okay. We've never had a product fail. So I think we just were operating under this idea that it's just, just one more feature, just one more thing, just something. And you know, in hindsight, that's a huge mistake. We have, we have this ability to make a giant mistake like that at Wildbit and nobody gets fired. And that is, you know, extremely important to be able to take risks, to be able to make mistakes, to not be so fragile that, you know, a mistake even of that size, you know. I think we, we did the math and we spent three million dollars on it. That a mistake of that size wouldn't crush us, you know. Wouldn't wouldn't have anybody laid off. So the team that had been working on it had been working on it for a while, and they were in a in a spot too, feeling bad about, you know, why we're not contributing to Wildbit, right? We're we're working on this thing that hasn't made us any money, and like this sucks. Like you know, there's just like the motivation just is really hard. And what we ended up doing was we brought the team in. You know they thought they were coming in to figure out what we're working on next and we said who's still excited (laughs) who's who's still here and chris was like i'll go first i'm not you know and we went around the room and we found the opportunity to say this isn't it for us you know and it's okay and nobody's going to be fired and let's just just say it's done and it's over and it's going to be okay and it was hard for everyone obviously so much work into something but I think there was a lot of relief that okay it's okay to to work on something and realize it's not the thing it didn't work and to put it on the shelf and move on to the next thing
1: so what does the future look like for Wildbit for your products and for your team
0: future is bright (laughs) you know Wildbit's 20 and Chris and I have said we've got at least another 10 in us so we're on this new 10-year strategic plan This is year one. We've been preparing for it for two years, and this is year one. The goal is to really double down on impact, what impact Wildbit has on the world. I look at impact as outside of us, right? And then to understand how a company like ours can be a collection of human beings working on cool stuff and not necessarily a software company. So really, really, really operationalizing experimentation and multi-product and how teams organize around multiple products. What are the life cycles of these products and how can we do more with our products and with ourselves to provide positive impact on the world? It's a big undertaking. I think one of my measures of success in in the next 10 years is to have a non-software product. I just wanna, I think that'd be like really good proof to me that it really is just about really caring, thoughtful people, really smart people, putting them in a room together, giving them a problem to solve and watching them just magically solve it. It's not magic, right? But it it looks like magic when you look from the outside. So that's kind of the goal. It's it's big. You know, I think we're going to grow in size. Really looking forward to seeing how we can operate as a bigger team. I don't think we're going to be a thousand people, but I'd like to see us maybe get to 50 or 100 and really see how we can use Wildbit as this... I think of businesses as tools, like how do I use Wildbit as a tool to maximize impact for human beings? That's really at the core of how I look at the business. And we've got four constituents. We've got the you know, the shareholders, which are Chris and I, we're the only owners of the business. We've got the employees, the customers, and the community. And so I'm like, okay, how do I use Wildbit as a tool to maximize positive impact on all four of those? That's where, that's where it gets really fun for me and really interesting and looking at our products as a way to enable those for constituents to really thrive.
1: That is a bright future and that is a big goal. I wish you all luck in the world. I really love the idea of a non-software product too as a as a tech guy for 15, 16 years. I, I've always been drawn to creating something, you know, in the world of atoms, not in the world of ones and zeros. And
0: I mean, we're not a unique, right? There's so many folks, especially software folks who are like, Tinkers, right? Chris is like baking bread or, or making soap or, you know, whatever, like always tinkering, racing cars, whatever he can do to just like be out there in the physical world. It's because nothing we do is tangible. It's tangible in the people, but, and, and in our customers that we meet and we talk to, but I can't touch it. And I think we all yearn for, or a lot of us yearn for something we can actually feel with our hands. We, and, and that can be done. I think that's the other big thing I've learned about myself is I, I search for products that, that have an end because our work is never done, you know, especially in web software, right? Like I, I'm not shipping. I almost like I, I wish sometimes I'd laugh. I'm like, can't we be like in the CD business? Like, here's the version. I'm going to ship everybody a CD, ship like a fin, like downloadable software because then it's done, right? And you're like, okay, on to the next version.
1: Well, Natalie, who influences the way that you work? CEO, CTO, architect, really, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and tell me why.
0: That's such a hard question because there's so many different people that I look up to. On the personal side, Peldi from Balsamic is a friend of mine. And over the years, his name comes up to us all the time. And just a person who has perspective on why we do all of these things. Just a really clear thinker and understands the bigger picture of all of it. I've also been lately really fascinated or, or really interested in the work that Ben Chestnut has done at MailChimp because it's one of those examples of a product that the company stayed private, right, but grew really big. And I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, but you, just this week, I read an incredible interview with Toby from Shopify on the observer effect. And I just can't get it out of my head. He's, a, he's also another, just somebody followed over the years from, you know, back when it was just like Rails conferences but just watching his way of thinking and articulating the world really resonates with me. And then there's like my mom, right? Who came to this country with nothing and figured out how to build a thing. So there's kind of a lot of inspiration out there.
1: I actually hear, hear that a lot. Like, how do I pick one, one person? There's so many facets to people, you know, and the inf- you can find influence in different areas of your life. So if you could go back to the beginning the very beginning of a wild bit, or even the beginning of a product, you're, you pick. What would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: Chris and I have said over the years that one of our biggest flaws is not looking at opportunity from a business standpoint, like what we could do that goes past us. We took a really long time to switch from being a stupid business from a smart business, or something like that. But a business that relies really heavily on Chris and Natalie to understanding that we can bring structure and operational excellence and not rely on us anymore. So one of the things we did really late was move from a flat org to having, you know, leads who who help individual contributors grow and who help us think through problems and, you know, who take some of that work off of our plates. That took us a really long time to realize and at the cost of us really starting to not like our work. So, you know, one of the things that's really funny that I don't think people think about as much as they should. We've been doing this for 20 years. I have not woken up every morning for 20 years, like super excited to go to work, right? There are moments, many moments, and sometimes they last a long time where owners, right? Like founders hate their job. I think at that point is when a lot of people start to sell. Or start contemplating selling, or raising whatever, whatever those things are. Chris and I, when we hit those moments, start going really deep into introspection and like, okay, what do we change? Because the business belongs to us, right? So like, we can change it in whatever direction we want to make it so it serves us too, so we enjoy it. We spend way too long not realizing that and not making change. So you know, there were some dark moments in our history around. You know, just hating the work or just feeling like it got too big or too complicated and things that once we brought really great experienced people into the mix, they showed us that it doesn't have to be that way and that they can share in some of that load and they can help us develop the things that we really care about and just keep opening up more and more opportunities for Chris and I to hone in on what we like, right? What is our unique ability? What are we bringing to the table? And Every year we just keep cutting out the things that aren't that. Just just keep honing in on it, right? Keep zeroing in on what do, what do we bring to the table that's unique to us and then outsource everything else. Not outsource, but you know, find other folks, delegate everything else to other people.
1: I think that's a great reminder and for maybe not reminder, but even piece of information for founders out there, for startup folks that are hitting that like dark moment that it's it's normal. It's a normalization of like, yeah, you're not going to love it every day. And some days you're going to wake up and be like, man, I don't want to do this today. And you can either make some changes or you can shuffle through it. And um, there's brighter days on the other side
0: yeah I mean, especially you know one of the things that was really hard for us, like if you ask me like for a second mistake, I'll tell you that we didn't have marketing as a as a process or as a discipline at wild bit. You know I, I hear that a lot especially from technical founders and then that's when they're like okay i gotta sell or i gotta find somebody else because i don't know how to scale this thing but there's this alternative where like you can just hire somebody really great who fits your culture and your vision of growth and let them run that piece of the business right like that's where i'm really starting to understand that it doesn't all fall on my lap i don't have to do it all i shouldn't do it all <laughs> right i should find people who are much smarter than me to do it and it's such a trope right everybody knows this but somehow I can't tell you how many founders I talk to who just get stuck there. It's my job, I gotta do it. it's like, no, you don't. You don't like it, you're not good at it. Bring somebody on who loves this stuff, who has the experience and who can get you to where you wanna go. I'll tell you honestly, no, that learning feels so silly to have this late in the game, but it's been transformative for us.
1: Well, last question, Natalie. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it, they can't wait to show it off to you, can't wait to show it off to the world. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road for, you know, 20 years now?
0: I would tell them to write down exactly what they think the future should look like for them. Like, write it down now, what do they want it to look like? In in the most practical sense as possible, what do you want out of life? Because a lot of people, and I meet them all the time, wake up 10 years later and they're like, I don't even like any of this shit anymore. <laughs> like. It went in a totally different direction. It'll it'll consume you. I I think of it. I think of business as the beast, and those ideas, especially like the day the business is born, it turns into this beast, and its only job is to get fatter and eat everything in its path, right? To just grow, grow. It's what it exists for. And if we can't put our harness around it and really control it, it'll just take over. It'll take over every decision, your happiness, your direction, your everything. And then that's when you wake up ten years later and you're like, what just happened to me? And so the thing that I wish we did, and we, we've been doing this for the last 10 years, I guess, but in the early days is every year we write down what do I want? And in the most like tangible terms, not like this hypothetical. I love the hypothetical. I want to be a billionaire. What are you going to do with a billion dollars? Write it down. You want results. You need to write them down, like tangible results, and then you start making better decisions. Because you were sitting on this amazing opportunity, let's say, and what are the options? You can go take it, you know, take it to a venture capital firm to like really scale it quick. You can grow small and learn. You yeah, a spectrum in the middle, but you can't decide on that answer if you don't know what you want. The business will tell you what it wants, right? Maybe you're sitting on like the coolest idea in the world, right? And you're like, well, the only way to bring it to the world is through huge fundraising round and maybe that's true make sure you write down like what you want in that process do you want are you okay losing control right are you okay okay getting on this rocket ship and riding it out for three years right like putting a lot of things on hold to do that if you don't enjoy the journey it's not worth it i know that sounds so ridiculous so obvious but like it's true the end results are going to be much better if you've really been honest with yourself on what you want to do with it
1: that's excellent advice well, Natalie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Wildbit.
0: Thank you, Noah. This is really great. I appreciate being on here.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laporte. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month.